Welcome to another Growth Masters Federal podcast on growing your business in the federal sector. Your host is Shirley Collier, president and founder of Scale to Market. Scale to Market helps businesses think, plan, collaborate, and prosper in the federal marketplace by developing and executing comprehensive data-driven business development playbooks. Historically underutilized business zones, or hub zones for short, may meet the common perception of an inner city neighborhood where incomes are low, unemployment is high, and crime is a major concern. But hub zones also exist in rural areas and even in proximity to colleges and universities where spinoffs and tech transfer startups can take advantage of the set-aside programs offered. The rules and regulations governing hub zone companies have recently undergone the first changes since the program's inception in 1998. Changes to eligibility and certification scheduling from contract-based to calendar-based, employee demographics, ownership guidelines, 1099 contractors, and many other changes can spell trouble for the underinformed business owner, their employees, and the agencies with which they work. Attorney Ed Delisle, who recently joined us in a discussion about SDVOSB regulations, governance, and ownership, today applies his years of experience in the field of small business government contracting to help Shirley clarify and address significant issues regarding the HUBZone program and the new regulations under which it is administered. And now here's your host, Shirley Collier, with her guest, Ed Delisle. Enjoy the podcast. Hello everyone, Shirley here. My special guest today is Ed Delisle. Ed is the principal and chair of the government contract group at Offit Kerman, an East Coast law firm with over 170 attorneys offering a comprehensive range of services in virtually every legal category among their 12 offices. Welcome, Ed. Thank you, Shirley. Ed, before we get started with today's topic, please tell our listeners a little more about your government contracting practice. Sure. Uh, My government contracting practice includes work at each stop along the contracting life cycle. For companies eager for an award of a federal contract, I'm often asked to assist with understanding what an agency is seeking as part of a procurement. Sometimes I'll even assist with redline reviews of proposals. Protests are really common, and I've been involved in many of those over the years. I've represented both disappointed bidders and interveners who are attempting to protect an award. I do a lot of work representing small businesses and small disadvantaged businesses, which can lead to special types of protests involving size and status of an awardee. I get involved in those all the time. I also assist companies in understanding contractual responsibilities post-award. If there's a disagreement about scope of work or schedule or adherence to a regulatory provision of some type, I'll assist companies in dealing with those issues and, if necessary, submitting requests for equitable adjustment or claims. And sometimes those disputes can't be resolved during the normal course of business, and I'll help companies through the litigation process as well. That's certainly a last resort, but it's an unfortunate aspect of doing business. Sometimes parties to a contract just don't see eye to eye, which is true whether you're operating in the private or the public marketplace. Um, I also act as general counsel for many of the companies that I represent. Since a lot of these companies tend to be on the smaller side, they don't have in-house counsel, so they'll call me regarding tricky procurement or regulatory issues. We're going to be discussing changes to the hub zone regulations today. I get calls about issues like that all the time, which sometimes includes how the sale of businesses like that will impact its status. So it's a fairly wide-ranging practice, and it's very interesting as things always seem to be changing. That is quite comprehensive, Ed, and helpful to small government contractors. And you're right, things are constantly changing. 
Today's topic is about the HUBZone program regulations and how small businesses can do well while helping their communities. The program has been around for a while, but it's evolving. So why don't you give everyone a quick understanding as to what the program is all about? Sure. The SBA's HUBZone program is designed to help business development in those areas that have been left behind. HUBZone stands for Historically Underutilized Business Zone. The idea is to incentivize people to open up businesses in areas that have been underutilized, which is often inner cities or very rural, remote areas, and employ people that live in those areas. So how has the SBA attempted to achieve this laudable goal? Well, federal government contracts can be set aside for companies that qualify as hub zones, and between that and other contracting advantages, such as the 10% price preference given to hub zone companies when they compete with large business concerns on unrestricted procurements, there are significant advantages to being uh, eligible. And there are hub zone subcontracting goals on large prime contracts as well, right? Uh, That's right. Under FAR Part 19, for acquisitions expected to be in excess of 700,000 or 1.5 million when it comes to construction contracts, Agencies must include contract clauses 52.219.8 and 9, which pertain to the utilization of small business concerns and small business subcontracting plans. Hub zones are expected to be a part of any plan submitted to a contracting officer for approval, uh, though I will say the government-wide goal of 3% of opportunities going to hub zones is not one that it's been able to attain. The SBA Small Business Report Card that came out earlier this year reflected the fact that hub zones accounted for only 1.65% of federal contracting opportunities. That's not great. That's not great. But it also represents an opportunity for hub zone certified companies to market to federal agencies. I know that we're going to discuss some of the recent proposed changes, um, but why don't you explain the current eligibility requirements? I'd be happy to. There are two primary drivers to eligibility. One, a hub zone company must maintain its principal place of business in a hub zone. Hub zone areas are reconfigured about every 10 years when the new census data becomes available. The census data is used to identify underutilized locations. Second, 35% of a hub zone company's employees must reside in a hub zone. They don't have to necessarily reside in the same hub zone as the principal place of business, but they must reside in a hub zone of some kind. What are the criteria that the government uses to determine if an area is a hub zone? That's actually a a very good question. So the SBA doesn't have independent authority to just come up with hub zone designations in whatever manner it chooses. It must use uh, information collected from the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, the Department of Defense, Housing and Urban Development, Bureau of Indian uh, Affairs, along with the Census Bureau to come up with its hub zone maps, and they're actual maps that you can uh, look at online. What the SBA looks for are areas where income levels are particularly low and unemployment levels are high. It, it will then create its hub zone maps based upon this collection of material and a review of that information. Ed, in my experience, some of the areas that are designated hub zones are around colleges and universities where they can find some fairly skilled individuals. So you should not always assume that all residents of hub zones are unskilled 
Is that your observation also? Well, yeah, that's right. It's not an issue of unskilled labor, though there can be that within a hub zone. The issue is underutilized labor, again, where the income levels are down and unemployment is up. And some companies with sophisticated business models like IT firms, a lot of my clients, have functions such as help desks that are staffed with lower-skilled individuals that could operate very successfully in hub zones. I have seen technology-based firms outsource call centers and similar functions to hub zone companies to fulfill their set-aside goals. That's a great point. I represent companies that do debt collection work for the federal government, and this is what some of them will do. It ends up being a win-win for everyone involved. So why has the SBA introduced changes to the hub zone program? Well, while the program is very well-intentioned, the requirements are pretty strict. You could be eligible one day and not the next, depending upon the circumstances. Um, This is primarily driven by the 35% employee residency requirement. As a result, the government tends to miss its hub zone goals year after year, just as I made reference to earlier, and it appears that the SBA is attempting to address that issue. I've heard some of these complaints, too. What are some of the changes that SBA is proposing to the program? Well, there are a number. Uh, Here are a few. First, under the current rules, a hub zone is required to comply with all eligibility requirements, both at the time of proposal or bid submission and at the time of contract award. That's not always easy, particularly as it relates to the 35% rule for employees. The proposed rules would require certification one time per year. Once certified as eligible, the hub zone company would definitively maintain its status for that year. The only issue of concern would be size, which is always an issue when it comes to companies operating as part of an SBA program. Meaning that you might qualify for hub zone certification given your location and employment record, but be above the small business size standards in terms of annual revenue. That's right, or in terms of number of employees, depending upon what the company's primary NAICS code is. We need to take a brief break. My guest today is Ed Delisle, Principal and Chair of the Government Contract Group at Alfie Kerman. When we return, we will discuss additional new regulations affecting HUBZone certified businesses, including changes to the best efforts rule. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Today's discussion is brought to you by Scale to Market, and your host is Shirley Collier. Utilizing the proprietary Davey Business Development Growth Framework, Scale to Market partners with business owners and executives to help their companies achieve productive and sustainable growth in the federal marketplace. Email Shirley at scollier at scaletomarket.com to obtain your copy of the Davey Framework. Growthmasters Federal is a nationwide community of growth-oriented government contractors their owners and executive teams, and the professionals who support them. The mission is to share experiences and discuss timely topics on planning and executing the most effective growth strategies in the complex, highly regulated, but opportunity-rich federal marketplace. And now back to our podcast on the new regulations governing the SBA's Hub Zone Set-Aside Program, featuring Ed Delisle, Principal and Chair of the Government Contracts Practice Group at Offit Kerman, a premier mid-Atlantic legal services provider with 12 offices and over 170 attorneys. Welcome back. Ed, before the break, we were talking about the proposed changes to the HUBZone program. 
How will the best efforts rule change? Well, the proposed regulations, if adopted, uh, would change the current best efforts rule. Currently, the regulations require that hub zone companies make substantive and documented efforts, uh, such as written offers of employment, published advertisements uh, seeking employees, and attendance at job fairs to prove that it is attempting to maintain the 35% requirement to employ folks who reside in hub zones. It's not exactly a bright-line rule. Under the proposed changes, the SBA has introduced more of a bright line of 20%. If the percentage of employees living in a hub zone falls below 20%, the hub zone company will be deemed to be in violation, though the proposed regulations provide a bit of wiggle room. What do you mean by wiggle room? Well, the SBA understands that contracting opportunities are funny things. You receive an award, and then oftentimes you need to ramp up to support that effort. For a hub zone company, that hiring period during a ramp-up process can present an issue. What if the hiring process during a ramp-up period is such that many of your early hires live outside of a hub zone? If you look at it uh, as a snapshot in time, yeah, it, it might not look very good. Under the proposed set of rules, there is some wiggle room in this situation. As long as the company is making documented efforts to hire hub zone residents within this time period, that is the ramp-up period, and ultimately gets to the appropriate employee levels, you would remain eligible. It's not clear how the SBA intends to oversee this process, and it sort of undercuts the bright-line nature of the rule, but there's a good, a good bit of time devoted to this topic in the proposed rules, so the SBA has given it uh, quite a bit of thought. So that means that contractors need to give it quite a bit of thought as well. So under the proposed rules, what happens if an employee who counted toward a hub zone's eligibility moves out of the hub zone area? Does the company lose its eligibility? Under the proposed rule, no. Uh, That's not the case under the current system. Under the current system, if that happened, it could be a problem. Under the proposed rule, if after a company is certified, an employee moves out of a hub zone, that person will continue to count as a hub zone employee as long as the individual remains an employee of the firm. That's a big deal. The SBA thought it was unfair that an employee could lose his or her job simply by virtue of moving. Uh, That's good for employees of hub zone companies, and it's good for the hub zones as well because it eliminates the need to constantly monitor employee residents and worry about eligibility. That's a significant change, Ed. I have hub zone certified clients who spend an extraordinary amount of time and energy monitoring where their employees live and subtly kind of discouraging them from moving (laughs) with this sort of sort of Damocles hanging over them. You know, if they move, they might lose their jobs. Then, of course, the company has the expense of recruiting and replacing those employees who have moved. So this is a welcome change. Yeah, I thought it was a very interesting one. In the comments that accompanied the rule, the SBA really seemed to get it, though it looked at it more from the employee's perspective. Why should an employee face losing his or her job by moving if moving could be a good thing for that employee's family? That's how the SBA looked at it, and it's a good thing. Yeah, I would agree. So what about 1099 employees? Are they considered employees? Well, that's a great question, and it's actually addressed in the proposed regulations, though there's no change in how these folks will be treated if the proposed set of regulations remains as is. 1099 employees are generally not considered employees for purposes of satisfying the hub zone program's residency requirements, and that's a common misconception. In the proposed rules, this is how the SBA puts it. Independent contractors who receive compensation through 
Internal Revenue Service Form 1099, generally are not considered employees for size purposes. And as such, it would not make sense to find an employee of a firm when determining the concern size, but then not to consider the same individual to be an employee when determining compliance with HUBZone eligibility rules. That's a quote taken right out of the um, right out of the comments to the rules. Put another way, the SBA states in the proposed set of regulations that if someone is truly acting as an independent contractor, that individual is acting as a subcontractor, not an employee. Okay, I understand what the government is saying regarding the differences between contractors and employees for size standards and hub zone eligibility, but isn't that an old-fashioned way of thinking about the spirit of the certification program? I mean, if the goal is to economically empower individuals residing in hub zones, why wouldn't people starting their own small businesses, like an independent contractor, be incentivized to work for larger hub zone companies or for the hub zone company that has hired them to be given credit for that individual towards their certification? Well, surely it's a good point, but what the SBA seems to be concerned with is consistency. They don't want a contractor to be able to take advantage of the tax or administrative benefits of retaining someone as a 1099 employee, while at the same time using that person to count as an employee for hub zone eligibility. So that means that if a small independent contractor could itself apply for hub zone status, um, it could leverage that status to grow their own business, right? Yeah, it's certainly possible. So when are the proposed regulations anticipated to be finalized? Well, the comment period for the new regulations ended a few days ago. Uh, I believe it was December 31st. So if I had to guess, I'd say that we'll have new regulations in place sometime in the first half of this year. Good, good. So Ed, as we wrap up our discussion about these rules, what advice would you give small businesses who are HUBZone certified or are seeking certification in light of these changes? My advice would be consult with someone who understands the new rules. The proposed changes are pretty significant. There hasn't been a set of changes like this probably since the program's inception in 1998. Make sure you understand what the rules say by talking to someone else who does. Good advice. Ed, thank you for your knowledge and your wisdom related to these important new regulations. All HUBZone businesses need to be aware of and make appropriate executive decisions to either obtain or to maintain their certification status. Thanks for having me, Shirley. Folks, if you want to get in touch with Ed, he can be reached at eddelisle at offitkerman.com. That's E-D-E-L-I-S-L-E at O-F-F-I-T-K-U-R-M-A-N.com. Or you can contact us here at Skelton Market and we'll make sure you're connected. Thank you for listening today. This is Shirley Collier signing off for now. Thank you for joining us today. For more information on how to grow your business in the federal marketplace, visit our website at scaletomarket.com, that's scale2market.com, and subscribe to the Growth Masters Federal channel on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcast. Check out our webinar series on the Scale to Market website. Join us again soon for another informative Growth Masters Federal podcast, and have a great day.